You're listening to Beyond the Studio, a podcast for artists. I'm Amanda Adams. And I'm Nicole Muller. We're both independent working artists ourselves. And here on the podcast, we have honest conversations with fellow visual artists about their careers and the real work that happens beyond the studio. You can find us online at our website, beyondthe.studio, or on social media at Beyond the Studio, where we share episode links, visuals, and so much more. If you're an artist and would like to be featured on our social media, or maybe even on the show, you can submit yourself to our listener spotlight and share what you're learning beyond the studio. Just follow the link in our show notes or go to beyondthe.studio slash contact. Beyond the Studio is a fiscally sponsored project of independent arts and media, IAM, a 501c3 nonprofit organization. You can make contributions to the podcast by going over to our website, beyondthe.studio slash about, and click on the button that says donate here. All donations made through IAM are tax deductible. Your support is greatly appreciated and goes directly towards sustaining the work of the podcast. If you love the show and haven't rated, reviewed, or shared the podcast, what are you waiting for? Please take a moment to show us your support. If you've already done this, thank you. It means so much to us, and it's one of the best ways to help us keep going and growing. I feel like we're living in like layers upon layers of compounded broken systems right now. And I think that a lot of us are just trying to do the same thing over and over again. But like how do we find those people that are going to help us envision like the new possibilities and the next things. Welcome everyone on today's episode of Beyond the Studio. We are really excited to be speaking with Alex Peck, who is an artist, a community builder, a curator and writer based in Los Angeles, California. Peck is also the founder and director of Tiger Strikes Asteroid, a nonprofit network of artist-run spaces, and is the program's committee co-chair at Kyopo, a collective of diasporic Korean cultural producers and arts professionals. And we actually first met Alex at the Art World Conference back in 2019 in New York City, Uh, which feels like such a lifetime ago, but you were speaking on a panel called You as Gatekeeper, Defining Goals and Initiating Opportunities about Artist-Led Initiatives, which was actually facilitated by Patty Johnson, who was another previous podcast guest on Beyond the Studio. And so we've been really interested in Alex's work with Tiger Strikes Asteroid for a while and their unique gallery model and are also really looking forward to talking with Alex about how he balances this with his other multifaceted work as a writer, curator, and artist. So Alex, thanks so much for taking time to join us on the podcast. Thank you, Nicole and Amanda, for having me. It's nice to see you again. It does feel like a lifetime ago. Yeah. Yeah, a lot has happened between then and now. Yeah, just just a couple of things. Just a couple. Those pre-pandemic years were like... A blissful former life or something. Yeah, right. But before we dive into talking about um, all the different types of work you do, which I think is one of the reasons we were really excited to have you on the podcast is because you are involved in so many different facets of the, the arts, the art world, building community, both locally and then through these broader networks. And I thought maybe a way to start kind of talking about all of these things would be to 
um, read a brief excerpt from your artist statement. I hope that's okay, and we don't usually do this, but I really loved the way that you describe your practice, and I thought that might be a, a kind of a good way to frame the conversation. And there's something specific in there that I wanted to ask you about, so if that's okay, <laughs> I have a little blurb here. Sure, I'm just going to go um, into the corner and yeah. cry <laughs> for a little bit, but go ahead. Okay, well, we can end it this for brevity if um, if we need to, but I love how you talk about, okay, so you say, in my work as an arts community builder, I found that I'm attracted to structures that are designed to expand, structures that employ horizontal and emergent growth patterns rather than something that is vertical and guided by a singular vision. The communities that I've helped build allow for a multitude of voices working together as equals, each of us aware of what the other is doing as we cooperatively move towards our goals. For whatever reason, my artwork, my organizing work, and even many of my hobbies are closely related to Adrienne Marie Brown's concept of emergent strategy, or the way complex systems and patterns arise out of a multiplicity of relatively simple interactions. My work is ultimately about the instability and adaptability of structures and the endless potential to imagine and build new structures and relationships, not only visually and formally in the work, but also within ourselves and the world we inhabit. And I really love this reference to structures that are designed to expand horizontally versus vertically. And I wondered if you could talk a little bit about what you mean by that. Yeah, I guess um, what I mean by that is, you know, at least in terms of like arts organizations, um, I think many of the more kind of traditional arts institutions, they sort of like, I don't know if you imagine it, like you build this like really tall tower and it's all about this one thing or like this one person or this one, this one idea or one sort of style or one something and then all the money and resources gets poured into, you know, stacking this like really, really tall monument or something. Um, but I think I'm more interested in like building these things that are like this sort of web where it kind of, it can keep growing and it grows kind of on its own. And there's no like, you know, I mean, there there is like hierarchy in terms of like people focus on different things, but it's, you know, relatively democratic or equal and you know the people way over on this side of this web don't have to know what everybody on the the other side of the web is doing and they they're just kind of doing their own thing and it's kind of like growing naturally uh, and the way that ties into emergent strategy is you know she talks about uh, community work or like activist work or social justice work um, as really being about like building an organization from like the the most basic unit which is a relationship between two people so the relationship has to be correct and uh, healthy and um, there has to be trust built between those two people and then you add another person you can add another person so it's like all about the relationships within the organization rather than like the organization itself Um, and i really think that's such a beautiful way of thinking about community building and the way that we change and it's so different than like kind of the charismatic leader model you know mm-hmm. that's kind of the, the more traditional model of like a nonprofits organizer organizer or like a, a activist group so that's kind of what i meant by that there is uh what you were saying about this network it reminds me so much of the way that uh like mushroom mycelium network works in nature where it's all about the 
the symbiosis of these um, resources being distributed back and forth. And it's not about a hierarchy, but about like keeping the entire community in health. And that, I don't know, that just reminds me so much of what uh, you were saying or yeah. made me think of that visual. She uses that, she uses that metaphor um, in, in emergent strategy as well. So that's, that's right. Oh, on the amazing. Money. Yeah. And then another, another um, image I really uh, resonate with in, in that book is, I forget what type of bird it is. Maybe it's a starling, but um, they, they do this thing called a murmuration and mm-hmm. it's the way that like a flock of these birds can, can, f- can sort of fly together like towards a common goal, but they don't really know where they're going and they're just looking around at like the next like six or seven birds around them. And you have to have like just amount, just the right amount of space, like not too much, not too little. Um, and you're just sort of adapting on the fly, like with these seven other birds around you. And then oh, wow. that collectively becomes like this larger uh, flock that just kind of can move together. Wow. Yeah, so I, I really love that image. Man, it's almost like we should be pulling from nature. <laughs> <laughs> well, I, I mean, I think like no, nothing's working, right? Like we've tried the same things for the past hundreds of years. So like, we got to look somewhere else, right? <laughs> so, like, I mean, I think we're looking at, people are looking at nature, people are looking back at like various indigenous, you know, forms of organizing or, uh, you know, like a lot of people are looking back into like um, shamanism from from their their cultures. And I think it's it's interesting. A lot of it is very community-based, at least the ones that I find. Maybe I'm biased because like I seek out that sort of stuff, but clearly like the the one leader model is not working. And so we have to look at other ways of thinking. And, and I think actually like um, I'm heavily influenced by like feminist organizing because like, I mean, it's not because it's not because uh, somebody is a woman that they're more communally oriented or community oriented, but it's because of uh, the patriarchy that women have often been forced to find ways to thrive and survive, you know, living under patriarchy. So they have been able to learn how to organize in communities and support each other and resource share and build communities. Um, so I, I'm really influenced by that as well. Yeah, I wonder if you could talk about how these ideas informed the model for Tiger Strikes Asteroid, um, and if you could describe that gallery model, which is pretty unique um, for listeners who might be unfamiliar. Sure. Uh, well, Tiger Strikes Asteroid, so like you mentioned, we're just a network of artist-run spaces. So we have five artist-run spaces throughout the U.S., and each of those is run by you know about a dozen or so artists and they all take turns. Um, they're all volunteers. Um, they all take turns uh, organizing shows there. They help out gallery sitting, doing some of the admin stuff. I am, um, I mean, it's, we have to figure out a better title, but right now my title is network director. So I do basically all the boring stuff, like all the admin stuff for the group and a lot of the, like the tax stuff and the bookkeeping and the website and stuff like that. Um, and I kind of run the steering committee, which is made up of um, two people from each of the sites. Uh, but basically it's like five independent artist run spaces. We have like sort of loose goals in terms of like uh, values and diversity in terms of our programming. Uh, but other than that, each site is really free to do whatever they want. And one thing I was thinking about recently, it's like we're, a, you know, we're an alternative art space right? or alternative artist run space or whatever you want to call us. but. I've been thinking more, it's like 
the model that we have is kind of interesting because it's it's more like a platform for alternatives, right? Like plural, because everybody in the group has the agency to like figure out what what their vision of an alternative future or alternative arts organization can look like. And there is a lot of commonality for sure, but um, it's also cool to see the differences. You know, each site has their own sort of local concerns. Um, and then within that, each member has different things. And I realized I didn't really answer your question. So I didn't I didn't know about Emergent Strategy when we started. I don't even think that book came out then. I think it came out 2017, but I might be wrong. Uh, we started 20, 2009. But I don't know, we kind of like accidentally, you know, like kind of fell into that model. And and for me, when I read that book, it really like, it was like, oh my God, this is describing like what we've been doing. Mm. And, and it helps us to like, it helped me to at least refine, mm-hmm. you know, it's like, okay, well, what, what is more aligned with this, this sort of stuff? And what is, what is aligned? What is just us just trying to mimic existing structures? Um, so it was, it was more like, it was like, it gave me, clarity and language to sort of think about what we're doing and be more precise about how we can go forward. Yeah, going back to the origins of Tiger Strikes Asteroid, what were some of the goals initially? Or, I mean, do you remember when you first started um, what what kinds of ideas you had about what it would look like? Um, or did you go in very open-minded? What was that? Um, what was your mentality back then? Yeah, uh, so that was 2009 when we started. So we probably were talking, I don't remember when we started talking, maybe 2008, maybe late 2007. So I was out of grad school, maybe three or four years at that time, which now doesn't seem like that long, but it felt like an eternity then. Um, And honestly, when we started Tiger Strikes Asteroid, it was just supposed to be the Philadelphia site. We had no plans to like, you know, actually, we did jokingly say that we could just sort of circumvent the entire the entire art world and like sort of build our way around it. But it was, I mean, honestly, it was more selfish when we started it. It was like, well, we need places to show our work um, and we need, we want a place to show the work that we want to see. So we thought of it as an opportunity for ourselves, you know, to, to make a place for ourselves at the table. And we were trying to like pull in curators and artists from outside of Philadelphia as well. So, I mean, honestly, it just, it started very, kind of like self in our own self-interest. But then I, I think like as the years have gone on, it's like, well, like I wanted a place at the table, but like this table is like fucking garbage. So like, I'm not interested in that anymore. <laughs> like I'm more interested in just like making our own tables and like, you know, uh, finding finding those people that are doing that work. Um, but yeah, th- but that's how it started. Yeah. Do you feel like you went into it with um, the idea of trying to create this kind of alternative gallery model or like in terms of how it was organized? Is that also something that evolved kind of organically? Yeah, it kind of, again, it just was very organic. You know, I remember the first, I don't know, maybe the first six months or so of programming, we like all got together. It was six of us. So we all got like a bunch of a list of artists or something and we voted on shows, you know, and mm-hmm. very quickly we realized like, well, these, these shows are kind of like, I don't know, not kind of like middle of the road. Cause it's like, well, what does a abstract painter, like what artist is an abstract painter, a figurative ceramicist, a sculptor, you know, and somebody else, what are they going to agree on? And it's always going to be the stuff that's like, oh, it's like pretty good, but there's no like kind of extreme points of view. 
in there. So we quickly realized that that didn't feel right. And instead we said, look, okay, let's just, let's just say like, okay, January, Alex, you do what you want. February, Alexis, you do what you want. You know, March, Tim, you do whatever you want. And that will make it so that you can really have your own vision expressed at the gallery. And, you know, looking back, that kind of planted the seed for what TSA became later on, right? Like on, on kind of like a micro level, but it wasn't like a, it wasn't like a philosophical like debate where it's like, well, like we should, we should really model our gallery after um, this book that's going to come out mm -hmm. in, in seven years. <laughs> You're <laughs> you know? really ahead of your time. Um, yeah. Prophetic really. It was, it was kind of like accidental <laughs> and um, you know, and also we were very, you know, one thing that we were very intentional about was like, you know, so we, we it's like, okay, we, we have all of our different circles and we were intentional about like not all being from the same schools, you know, in Philly, like there were, I went to Penn, so there were a couple of Penn people. And then we were very intentional about trying to not make it just like the Penn crew or the Temple crew or, or whatever. Cause you know, we've, we've all seen those models and then it's just, the circle just is, it just, it's completely closed. It never opens. So one thing we were very intentional about from the beginning was like, okay, here's these artists that we want to work with. And then for the next round, let's ask them to give us people to work with. So then it's at least like, it's still kind of connected, but it's like the Venn diagram. So it's like, it's like expanding the circle, the community out like one step further and then like one step further. So that was kind of very intentional so that we can always be growing as a community and, as, and, and have our audience always be growing as well. Yeah, I keep imagining these concentric circles that are just like getting larger and larger. And I guess on that like yeah. topic of growth, what was what was the expansion process like? Because I think one of the things that is really unique is how, you know, to do this within one organization or within one location would be sort of like considered an alternative model. But the fact that you've been able to grow that and like there are multiple locations and there is just such this, you know, interconnected web that all fun fall under the umbrella of Tiger Strikes Asteroid, but are all kind of unique, you know, to their own respective places. And so I'm really interested in like what that process was like and how did those other locations start to emerge? Well, you're going to notice a theme here, but um, it was kind of <laughs> accidental and just kind of happened. <laughs> mm -hmm. So, uh, you know, I, I started the Philly space um, with, with five other artists. And then uh, my wife got a job in New York, or she she, had, she got her resident or her fellowship in New York. And so we went there and I tried to be like a remote member of Philly for a while, but it was like, it was like, okay. But then we we're like, well, what if we what if I just do the same thing here? And so I got a group of people together. A lot of them I didn't know I'd met for the first time. It was again, going back to that idea, like, well, who could I know that's, who could I work with that's maybe one step removed? You know, not too many steps removed, so it's a complete stranger, but there's like at least one common link. So then we started the New York space. And when we were talking about what to call it, we kind of said like, huh, wonder, like, what if we just keep the same name? Is that weird? Like, could that be something? And so that's how the New York thing started. And then the LA and Chicago space spaces were started by people that we had worked with, like artists that we had worked with or known, and they wanted to open up their own own sites. Um, so those were those were ones that I wasn't directly involved with, like in terms of like physically being there. And then the Greenville site, the Greenville, South Carolina site, was started by a member that uh, moved down there, and you know he had he had to move down there to care for a very sick family member. 
um, and he wanted to start something down there. So we all voted and um, we gave we gave him the okay. So that's kind of the that's kind of like the quick like I don't know fact list of of how they started. Honestly, I'm still like I'm still recovering from having five spaces. Like you know the you know what I mean. Like I still don't really we still don't understand like quote unquote like what it means. You know, or like, because it's like, it's like, yes, we're one organization, but yes, we're also five organizations. And yes, we're also 50 individual artists that are carving out their own ideas of what an alternative art world would look like. So it's, it's a, it's a, it's an interesting thing to try to like, hold on to. Yeah. It's like, uh, you can, I can never quite grasp it. Yeah, that seems like a lot. <laughs> Even to just like, conceptualize. Much less, much less to have as your daily reality. <laughs> I'm so interested in that idea of like deciding to keep it as a part of the Tiger Strikes Asteroid Network, though. Like once you moved to New York, instead of starting up a new space, what made you decide, you know, let's try and maintain some connection or, yeah, what was the, I guess, thinking and wanting to kind of maintain it as a part of that network? I don't know. Yeah, I guess, I mean, we had been showing a lot of New York artists um, at the Philly space. So I think that we had like the tiniest sliver of like name recognition, especially amongst artists. So it, I, I mean, it was almost like, a, I don't know, it was like maybe like a branding idea. It was like, well, like you just hear the name over and over again. And then, and then like, that's how that's how maybe you, you, you get seen or you get visibility or something like that. Um, I don't remember the exact conversation. I'd love to like call a friend right now and see what they remember about those conversations. Yeah. I, I can't <laughs> Phone <remember>. a friend. <laughs> yeah. We can introduce that as a new part of the podcast. Um, but I think it was kind of like, it was kind of like a branding. It was kind of like a branding idea, you know? Mm -hmm. Yeah. And then were you still in constant conversation with the Philadelphia space as this new New York um, branch was kind of developing? Like, were you still kind of collaborating on ideas or shows or things like that? Or was it really its own independent um, site? For a while, the um, the four sites, the LA, Chicago, Philly, and New York, we were like very independent. And, and, you know, going back to that murmurations metaphor, like I think that we were a little, our distance was a little bit too far, you know? And then so we had to figure out like, you know, how do we tighten it up a little bit? Plus there was like sort of the practical financial I, uh, the financial aspect where it was like, okay, like this lease is like literally under my name. So like, mm -hmm. you know, it's under my mm -hmm. bank account and this lease is under Anna's bank account in Chicago or whatever. You know what I mean? It was like, it was like, we should, we should probably figure this out. <laughs> um, so that's, that's when we decided to become um, a nonprofit. Um, and then we started like implementing more like structured check-ins um, with everybody and like you know, and, and it's it's a constant back and forth, um, especially for me, like, it's like, well, how much do I want to, like, I never want to feel like I'm like, ordering something to happen, you know, and, and I never want to feel like I'm overly influencing something. But at the same time, like, there has to be points where somebody's moving things forward. Um, so that's always like, kind of like, trying to figure out that, that distance where it's like, how close do we need to be? But like, how close can we be, but still be independent? But how far is too far where it just kind of like dissipates into into nothing? As far as like uh, communications, or do you mean actual like physical distance between locations? I think uh, communication 
for sure. And I don't know, like, um, like spiritual distance or something, just to make sure mm. we're all on the same page that we all feel like, even though we're separate, it's still, we're still like a community, you know, especially the, the especially amongst like the steering committee, um, you, you know, and that we're all making decisions together. Um, and what, what one site does has an impact on what the other sites do. Yeah, I would love to hear more about that and what that looks like, because I think something that we have talked about on, you know, past podcast episodes is the sort of difference of being like working within a small group of people or even being an independent artist and like being able to make decisions quickly or be really like fast and nimble versus working within a larger organization, whether that's an arts organization or like a company and just the layers of, of relationship or, you know, how much kind of like slower things can be, or like you just have more, it seems like inevitably like more structure or more hierarchy. But I think what is different about Tiger Strikes Asteroid is how you've, you know, been able to grow in a way that preserves that like horizontal growth, as you were describing, as opposed to like the need to sort of impose more like structure or more, you know, leadership positions or more hierarchy in order to kind of like keep all of those different galleries working together. So I'm really interested in, um, you know, I think a lot of people would like resonate with the philosophy, but then maybe struggle with the implementation of that. Uh, Like, what does that just practically look like? Um, Like, you know, is the steering committee meeting regularly or do you are you having like off-site retreats to make sure everyone's like on the same page just like what is that you know preserving that kind of like ethos and um and then just like keeping the organizations running Uh, what does that look like just on a practical level yeah i mean it's um it's hard i mean we're we're on slack and you know like some people will just never check slack no matter what, uh-huh. there's there's no way you can you, you can't force people to answer emails or respond to texts. Um, so we're all on there. I mean, one thing that I think is really important that I we are trying to work towards with our budget is to really build at least like the local camaraderie um, and have community and like do things together. You know, in the New York space, it kind of naturally happened because we all like kind of live on top of each other there anyway. So we would see each other like at openings and things like that. But some of the other sites, you know, moving to LA, especially, it's like you have to drive like 40 minutes to get anywhere. Just really trying to, I don't know, be people, be friends first. Or I mean, you don't have to be best friends, but like be a community first and like be like, oh yeah, I like these people. Um, You know, one of our New York members, she made a really excellent point at a meeting that I was sitting in on. And she was like, you know, we, we have to like, we have to be a community. Otherwise it's just a list of chores and I don't need any other oh. chores in my life. And, and that was like really, you know, that was like such a, that was a, such a smart thing mm-hmm. to say, you know, cause if you're not like, cause if you're not working for, if you're just working for this like abstract organization, that's like, you know, might as well be working at like Starbucks or something. Right. But if you're like, if you feel like you're working for other people that that you're in community with, then it's a little different. You're you're more willing, I think, to to give a little bit, um, and then you know. But that goes both ways. That means like that everybody has to chip in a little bit. So that's one thing I, I've been thinking about. You know, in practical terms, like for a steering committee, we meet quarterly, but it's all on Zoom. We talk a lot on Slack. We try to make some easy decisions over Slack. And um, we try once a year to like 
fly everyone out to one city and get together in person for like our annual budget meeting and and then like you know at the bare minimum have a meal together you know which is like you know, it, it's it's not a huge thing but i feel like really just like being able to see people in person after only seeing you in boxes for a long time and just starting to kind of cultivate that relationship is really important and we're we're trying to we're trying to implement that more formally across the network. Like, um, like last year, we said, okay, you guys have like this amount of money and from the network, and you have to plan something fun for yourselves to do. You, you know, like, do you have to like you have to do something together? Like, there's a, and, and and don't talk about TSA when you're doing it. Just like hang out, get dinner, go mini golfing, or you know, do something together. And like, don't talk about TSA. It's not a it's not a it's not a work meeting. So I think that's that's one. I don't know. That's one thing. And I think, uh, I mean, another lesson that I'm constantly learning is that everybody has their own way of doing things. And for the most part, it's okay. And a lot of friction arises when I want things done the way I would do it. Mm. <laughs> <laughs> you know? I don't know anything but, about that at all. <laughs> <laughs> so there's a, you know, that's always a constant, that's always a constant um, internal battle. You know, trying to trying to let people figure things out on their own and do it their way. Um, you know, and then another thing, like as our organization gets bigger, like it seems like we should be more like professional and stuff at this point, but it's all volunteers, so I need to be cognizant of that. And also, I, I think like I, you know, there's that saying where it's like the perfection is the enemy of the good or something like that. And I think that's really important when, especially when working in like a all volunteer group. It's like we just make everything good enough and that's fine. You know, like, so what? You didn't post that much on Instagram. Like, nobody's going to die. It's totally fine. So what? There's a little typo on a press release. Like, you know, Gagosian sends out, like, corrections to their press releases all the time. You know what I mean? Like, so it's like, it's just, it's fine. Like, it's it, it's all good enough. Like, just get it to good enough. Don't, like, stress about, like, that last, like, 20, 10 to 20% to get it to perfect because um, it's, it's fine. And I, I feel like that helps a lot um, in terms of managing internal expectations. And, and we have had friction within the group where people wanted it to kind of be perfect or really wanted it to be, really wanted certain things to be uh, more quote unquote professional or more like other galleries are doing. But those galleries have full-time paid staff and we're sort of like doing this on our spare time. So it's an unreasonable expectation to have, I think. The older I get, the more I realize just the idea of changing your expectations. It's just a life lesson that just keeps coming up all the time at all stages. Yeah, I feel like it's so relatable because I'm sure like most artists can relate. You know, whenever you care deeply about something, you want to like hold it up to this certain standard and you have certain expectations for yourself or the work or whatever you're involved in. But on the other hand, you have to constantly practice this exercise of letting go and being open. And I imagine, especially in this gallery setting where you're like growing in such a way that like, I just keep thinking about this idea of control, like, you know, you can grow in a way that like allows you and maybe this is where a lot of organizations develop these kinds of hierarchies. It's like you need to have, you know, X amount of decision makers at the top so that they can like steer the ship and like control where you're going and like make decisions. But to try and like do things in a different way, that's also not, I guess, like thinking about the way that you were 
curating exhibitions way back in the beginning. It's not like designed by committee where you end up with this like very mm-hmm. middle ground, you know, result, but like allowing everyone the freedom to like stretch themselves and do what they want to do. But like also trusting in the people that you're working with. And I, I think, you know, hearing you talk about like not like having a full grasp on this is is so interesting because I, I feel like maybe that is reflective of the way that the gallery is growing and that maybe is a really positive thing because otherwise like if you did it's like you know you're kind of like maintaining this like oversight or this level of control that is kind of counter to the the way you all have chosen to run things and so I just think it's so it's so interesting how you know you've managed to to make this work and also to have such growth like to have so many branches that are all equally devoted and committed to you know making this thing what it is and so I really appreciate hearing about this because um, I think we've we've really been like inspired by what you all are doing for quite some time and really kind of wanted to understand more of like the inner workings of that um I know a lot of other artists are, are really um, going to be interested to hear about this too because um, it's something I think we'd all like to do more of like less like less hierarchy and like less um you know, vertical organization uh, in our lives, whatever that looks like. But how do we really grow in a way that prioritizes community and relationship and, um, you know, allows us to like extend our roots further than with just that model of like trying to do things on your own independently. Yeah. I'm, I'm continuously trying to learn that too. I feel like lately I've been having so many conversations about community and getting all of these various metaphors. And I keep thinking of it in this, in terms of this garden where you like, you can benefit so much from having a garden, but you have to tend it, you have to like, show up and like both of those things, you know, harvesting the garden and watering and weeding the garden, like those are both things that have to you have to do both in order for the, I don't know, the cycle to continue. And I think it's so many artists, especially now, feel so isolated in our own little studios making our work. And so finding ways to uh, be a part of community or create community, um, especially if we're like, I don't know how to get into art spaces or I don't understand how these art worlds work, like having some examples of create your own. And like, here's some roadmaps of how, how we tried. So really appreciate you sharing that. Yeah. I mean, well, it's like that, that whole idea of the isolated artist, I'm sure Patty talked about this on, on, on your episode or her episode. She talks about it a lot, but you know, it's like based on this myth of like this isolated artist in the studio. And the only way you're valuable as an artist is if you, you know, spend all your time in the studio. Right. And, and that makes you a serious artist, but like, it's like that comes from like a bunch of like white dudes whose like wives, whatever, or whatever, like did all the labor, yeah. taking care mm-hmm. of their kids, you know, doing all this stuff. And like, that's how they're magically able to like be, be in the studio all the time. Yeah. So it's even, you know, even, even, even that myth, it, I mean, it's, it's a total myth because it just doesn't, it's just like whether or not you acknowledge the community that supported mm-hmm. you. You know what I mean? Like, so it's not even like there's never there's never an artist that was just like alone by themselves in the studio. It's just that 
we conveniently decided to ignore 50% of the population and uh-huh. the labor that they do. <laughs> you know? Yes, facts. Yeah, that's a that's a really great point. Like whether or not you acknowledge that community is there, like it exists and you're part of it and like whatever success stories we're hearing are because of that and not in spite of it. Right. I know we've been talking a lot about Tiger Strikes Asteroid so far and the gallery model that you've developed, um, but we're also really interested to know more about all the other types of work that you're involved in, um, your community organizing, your work as a curator, writer, and artist. Um, so I wondered if we could uh, shift into talking about some of those things and maybe your own artistic practice too. Um, like how do you balance that with the many responsibilities of being involved in Tiger Strikes Asteroid? Yeah, and I'm just really kind of interested to know more about how how you spend your time. What do your days look like? <laughs> yeah, um... Well, I mean, my my work for the past many years has been um, these sort of modular paper installations, and you know, they're you know, you'll you'll see they're they're almost like, you know, they're not about emergent strategy or whatever, but they're definitely similarities, or there's a there's a, a, a ethos that's similar to it, where it's you know these uh, installations that are built is just one unit over and over again, and it's improvised each time, so there's no final form. It's always changing and it's about kind of like the possibility for all these new relationships to form every time that this piece is shown and there's never going to be like a final static moment it's always it's always it's it's always possible that something new will emerge um so that's what i do uh in terms of my artwork it's very labor intensive so i can only make maybe like two or three of those a year. Um, and then I do like wow. some smaller things um, on the side as well. Um, what do my days look like? So uh, this morning I woke up and took the girls to school. And then I have usually like, I try to get a little bit of studio time in in the morning. Um, and then usually I have a bunch of phone calls and then pick the girls up. I have to take Fiona to swim practice tonight, then make dinner. And then, you know, then clean up and then answer some emails and then rinse and repeat. Um, and some days I'm, you know, a lot of days I'm training martial arts. So like last night I was, I was there. Yeah, that's kind of what my day looks like. It's doing some TSA stuff, doing some Kyopo stuff, doing some writing. It's, it's all, I, I don't know. It's, um, you, you know, I get the balance question a lot because um, my life looks like a, like a crazy person's life. Uh, from the outside, but I, I think it's you know it's you know I think about it. There's there's no, there's no balance. Like there's you can't you can't like math your way into a balanced life. And I think what's helpful to me is to think about um, seasons. Um, so there will be uh, busy seasons in your life, and that means that you have to focus on that, and you will be quote unquote bad at other things in your life. You know I know that you both took a a break from the podcast for a while because you had a busy season in another part of your life and that's fine and that doesn't mean that you're that doesn't mean that you're not podcasters Mm -hmm. at that point it just means that you're not doing it at that time so that's that's kind of how i think about it like right now it's a very busy season for parenting because um, my toddler is like a feral animal so it's it's a lot Um, but you know in a couple years she'll be in school uh, full-time so that will that'll open up things you know, 
like this month is a very busy season for tsa because i have to get like our demographic charts ready for our steering committee meeting and start to get the papers and the the books in order for the accountant for taxes and all that stuff um so maybe there won't be as much like um you know studio stuff or whatever but that's okay um you know i probably won't be writing this month but that's fine too but yeah i don't know i guess uh so i don't know that's that's what i think about balance <laughs> but I, th- I think like all this stuff i don't know i realize like it's like i i do all these things because i'm trying to find where will give me the most probability of like meeting cool people right and like finding the relationship finding the people that i want to be involved with it's not at openings for the most part i mean i'm sure there's like a i don't know like five percent chance that i'll meet someone cool at an opening but for the most part i found that's not the case so i i you know i think like you know tsa like i've met so many lifelong friends and like um i've been able to work with who i want to work with you know uh, which is really cool um and then kyopo uh which is this group i got involved with here out in la has been a great way for me to meet people that i want to be in community with and you know like martial arts like you meet so many interesting people there that you wouldn't otherwise and then the writing is like i mean that's a very new thing for me but that's like a way for me to kind of connect in another way with other artists that like i really want to to be in community with um at least through writing and then you know the nice thing is i have the agency to kind of pick who i want to write about too so I, i'm very intentional about that so i don't i don't know i feel like like the overall the overarching theory is like i'm just like trying to build a life mm-hmm. you know like and like for me for me that looks like like i want to be around people that like nourish me and challenge me and make me grow um and increasingly that's uh fewer and fewer people in the art world uh not to but that doesn't mean that there aren't people there um so i think that's why like i'm doing all these uh extracurriculars <laughs> that reminds me so much of like Nicole, I won't speak for you, but I feel like that's how I approach the podcast a lot where it's like, I just want to be in community with these people. These are artists that I, I'm so like impressed by their practice and, and their, their mindset and their activism and, you know, just whoever they are as a a person. And it's like, I want to learn from them. And also now I get to become Mm -hmm. their buddy because we just spent like two hours talking and now we have this connection and like so many relationships that, you know, just started as a phone call through the podcast have turned into real friendships. And I just remembered, uh, well, over New Year's, I was getting together with a bunch of friends. And one of them was a previous podcast guest, uh, Christopher Lynn. And I had mentioned that I was gonna talk to you on the podcast. And I was like, Oh, yeah, Tiger Strikes Asteroid. And he was like, Oh, my God, love Tiger Strikes Asteroid. And I feel like maybe it said something about like an artist parent group. Mm-hmm. Yeah, we 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 are. I haven't been attending those, but yeah. I was just curious about the just the adorableness of an artist parent group and just the however that came about or you know, even if you were a part of it just for a little bit, just speaking in terms of community and also random connections and overlap. <laughs> yeah, I love that podcast connection. <laughs> yeah, I was like, "All oh, right." Yeah. I forgot. Uh yeah, I mean the uh, this this is it's a it's a mostly New York based artist parent group and it was kind of started during the pandemic I think by uh, my friend Natalia Nakazawa and um, Eileen Jing Lynch but it was it was like monthly check ins you know with each other the zooms were always like very chaotic and cute with kids running in and out 
but it's cool. I, I think they've done like like play dates and stuff, which you know obviously I couldn't participate in. But um, so I, I I know Christopher Lin through that, and um, also through we worked with him at Trestle Gallery with some of his artwork. Yeah. Yeah, I had just heard him mention artist parent group, and I was like, that is so wholesome and sweet, and probably so needed because I mean I know we had talked about the the myth of isolation, but parenthood does seem to be quite isolating for a lot of of parents where you. You know, it, it's hard to stay in community, and so uh, for for any listeners out there that may be having trouble in in early parenthood and artist balance, you can connect with other other artist parents out there. Find your little group. Yeah, another another person who's doing really good work in that front is um, uh, Kaylin Butine. I, I think that's how you pronounce oh, her last yeah. name. I'm sorry if I mispronounce it. She has a podcast. Um, she does the right? art, it's like yeah, artist mother podcast. That's um, right. I was I was on there for a Father's Day episode um because nice but um but i think they they have a really rich community of um of artists mothers yeah i think we know some artists that have been involved in that community too yeah i feel like uh just in our entire conversation this idea of community in a very like direct like who are the people that you want to be around and spend time with and like help you grow both in and outside the arts and like how do you put that at the forefront of you know all these things where it's easy to sort of get swept up in you know our own day-to-day or like your you know individual goals or your, your own work or career but like losing sight of the greater networks that we're all living and existing within and just the people that we're around and working with and I feel like that's been a really inspiring part of getting to talk with you. But I also appreciate hearing about that seasonal ebb and flow of your work and the sort of myth of balance, because I think that can be like a hard pill to swallow too, that like your, this sort of like life as an artist is going to look very different. And, you know, it's not necessarily going to follow like both on a daily basis is kind of like, you know, normal, quote unquote, normal routine. But also zooming out, like you're going to have different seasons where different, you know, things are higher priority, whether it's like life or work related. And um, I know that's been coming up for us too in other recent conversations. And like you were saying, we, we've definitely taken a step back from the podcast at different moments, whether because of like uh, needing to focus on personal things or like just having a lot of mm-hmm. other projects on the go. And, um, it's good to remember cause it's, it is easy to like fall into this, like, like, oh my God, am I even an artist still? If you haven't, let's say like been to the studio in a few weeks or like you haven't produced work that month. And, um, I think just like re just shifting like our perspective that like, yes, like you can still, you know, the podcast can still be like a very important passion project, even if we haven't recorded any episodes in six months. And yes, you're still an artist, even if you haven't made it to the studio this month, because you are focused on family or other things. And just like, you know, all of these still being such an important part of your identity, even though like you're not giving them equal attention every single day. Mm -hmm. Um, I just feel like that shift in perspective um can be hard for artists but is important for our sanity yeah and i feel like it's really hard um especially in the arts because it's like this weird thing where it's like there's like this sort of uh this sort of like fake sense of scarcity 
was that's what drives the market. Mm. Uh, and then there's also this like weird sense of like hustle culture, you, you know, and I'm the last person that should be saying this, but like, you know, moving to LA from New York, like a part of it was just like my type A personality mixed with the New York City hustle culture. Like I could mm. see that was like really toxic, right? So moving to LA, like it kind of gave me a little bit of perspective. I mean, LA, it's, hustle culture is still here and, you know, all that, all that sort of stuff. But like, just like having distance from where I'd been for so long, like, just like looking on Instagram, I was like, wow, like, there's so many artists are just like, here's a new 16 by 20 painting, here's a new 16 by 20 painting, like every single day, you know, and it's like, it just doesn't seem healthy. And like, yeah, you should take, you don't even have to have an excuse to take a break from your podcast, you should just do it when you feel like it. Because it's yeah. yours, you know. Like why? Like who? Who is telling you you have to do six thousand episodes a year? It's yeah. just like yeah. we have this mentality that we have to produce more, 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 more all the time, and just like feed content to the machine, or else you won't get engagement, and blah blah blah. All this stuff will happen, like you know. So, but it's it it doesn't it doesn't matter, you know. And then you know, like oh. another thing that I've been thinking about a lot. Um, I turned forty during the pandemic. So just thinking about like death and life and mm -hmm. stuff like that, but like like who are we killing ourselves for? You, you know what I mean? Like why are we like you know? It's like I'm killing myself for some algorithm or like for uh, for an art world that like has historically failed people that look like me and continues to fail people that look like me. Like why am I killing myself for for this garbage? You know like. Like, I don't know. It just made me like, so it's like, you know, I think that doesn't mean you shouldn't work hard, but you should figure out who you're working hard to and like who you're working hard for and like who you want to be visible to, you know, and I think that makes things much clearer. And, and I say this as someone who is battling that still like every day, you know, like trying to figure that out. So I definitely don't have it figured out. So I'm like, this is like my daily affirmation to myself or something. <laughs> I was gonna say, can I get, yeah. can I just like get this on a repeat to hear every morning? Like, hey, you don't have to participate in that system. Like, who are you working for, or what are you working so hard? For? You can. You, uh, <laughs> you're the editor, so you could just do that. That could just be the whole oh podcast. My God, you're right. The technology exists. <laughs> yes. Yeah, we've definitely had those conversations before. I distinctly mm -hmm. remember a time before we went on a break where Amanda and I had this schedule where we were releasing episodes every week for a period of time because we were like energized and, you know, we did this. We had like a live event, like there were just all these things and like very quickly burnt ourselves out and realized we couldn't keep that same pace. And it's almost funny how like difficult it was for us to recognize that. Like, mm -hmm. I remember we were just like, I think we really need to like think about, you know, maybe every other week or like, we just can't sustain this. Yeah. And then at some point it was like, like, we just created this rule for ourselves. Like, why do we feel like we have to keep like yeah. producing at the same pace? And like, we, yeah, we, we can change this. Like we're in control here more than we think. And mm -hmm. there's no reason that we have to keep like running ourselves into the ground and we're also like comparing ourselves to other podcasts that like have full-time staff members that are able to do this right, so right. it just like creates this false um expectation that we have to like hold ourselves to and so mm -hmm. yeah it's yeah so easy to get swept up in all of that yeah and like different people's practices like in terms of art like th like there's only one model that fits on instagram right it's like things that look good as flat images and like constant content, 
right? Like that's the only way you can you can be seen on that. Yeah. And I remember like many years ago, like I tried to like quote unquote do Instagram right, and I was like, okay, I'm gonna I'm gonna post like four to five times a week and stuff like that, and like do all this stuff. <laughs> like you know like i make like three installations a year so it's like very quickly i ran out of content <laughs> and, like, was, and, and like you know like i make like these fragile things out of paper and it just looks like i'm taking like shitty pictures of my wall like when i post like my work <laughs> like so it's like it's not like it's not conducive to um to what the algorithm wants mm-hmm. um so like i mean i still post you know pretty regularly but like it's just now it's much less uh it's much less stress it's like, oh, maybe I'll post once a week. I'll try to do that. And then when I see shows, I post about them. Um, but I don't know. Yeah. Maybe it's like the LA vibes, just like kind of do what I want when I feel like it. <laughs> it sounds like we could all use a bit more of that. <laughs> I feel yeah. like there's a direct correlation between mm-hmm. like my time spent, like thinking about social media and like planning and like my, like how miserable I am. It's like very, yeah, there is something really satisfying about trying to just like disconnect and like removing yourself from the that like pressure and like I'm just gonna would anyone notice if I disappeared for a month probably not like Mm -hmm. you know we don't need to hold ourselves to these uh expectations to just feed this machine yeah and it's like I mean it's it's one thing if it's like um is it Amanda is it you that just did a public arts project Oh, Nicole. Oh, I'm oh, sorry, it's Nicole. It's like it's like one thing if it's like you have a project and you're making money from it, and like so you obviously have to like work hard to do that. But it's like, mm-hmm. I mean, I don't know. Maybe you're making like millions of dollars off this podcast, but like, like if you're not doing it for money, no. This this podcast is volunteer time too. <laughs> yeah, yeah, yeah. Like if you're so if you're, if like your livelihood doesn't depend on it, then like you don't need to like you don't need to like work as if like you're like on an assembly line, right? And like, you know, the same thing with art. Like, I mean, I know for me, like, you know, there's not much of a market for like temporary pieces of paper nailed on a wall. So I'm not making that much money off of it. So I don't need to produce as if I'm like a factory, you know, like try to get as much done as I can and I enjoy the work and, but like trying to get rid of that pressure. Cause again, it's like, it goes back to like, who you're working for. Like if you're working for money, then that's great. You got to work really hard and you got to, you got to sell the things, you got to meet those deadlines. But for like the vast majority of artists, we're not really working for the money. We're doing it for ourselves and to sort of build this rich life. So you don't need to like, I don't know, like I'm not going to like be on my deathbed and be like, man, I wish I made like five more paintings. That would have been awesome. You know, instead I spent all this time with my stupid family and my friends, (laughs) you know what I mean? Like and made all these dumb memories. God damn it. You you know what I mean? Like, but like, I feel like we like act as if like we have to make the next thing like, or or else like we're going to die. Like you have to finish the next thing right away. Yeah. What's Um, at stake? Yeah. (laughs) Yeah. Oh man. Yeah. I feel that. And I think there's also something to be said about like taking the financial pressure off of your art practice. I mean, I say this as someone who is like sustaining my life currently off of sewing a lot of art objects and mostly cat toys currently but uh (laughs) but i i feel like a lot of times the financial pressure that can get tied to a creative practice when it becomes your your bread and butter your bringing home the bacon or whatever i think that it can really have an impact on your work and there's i don't know being able to like remove these external pressures 
from your practice as much as possible so that when you're able to create, it is something that is fueling you. Like I, I would like to hope that our, our artists like practice is something that, that we love and benefit from, but like a lot of times these pressures can take away that love. I know that was a little tangential, but (laughs) no, I think that, I think that makes sense. Making art, it's like, I mean, for me, the way I've been thinking about it more recently, it's like, uh, again, it goes back to relationships. Like, I want, I want to, I want my art to be seen, right? Because I want it to have a relationship with other artists, right? And I like making art too because it's it it's a way to form a relationship with artists from the past that are around now and like potentially in the future. So it's a re- way to create these relationships across time, which is super cool. But yeah, but it's definitely not, for me, it's not a way to make money. But I also say that, you know, because my, my wife makes enough money for both of us. That's why I'm able to not have that pressure. So I just should disclose that, I think. Um, I did, I appreciate what you said about time um, and the, like the way that the artwork can like connect people across time. I talk with my husband about this a lot. He's a musician and I, I'm always I'm like, I try to imagine that there are more people that are going to be impacted by my work than I'll ever be able to be, you know, aware of. And probably a lot of that will happen when I'm gone. <laughs> and thinking of the fact that like, I could, like, I now could be speaking to someone that is in a completely different lifetime than me through my art. And like, what do I really want to say? What do I really want to do with this work? I don't know. Not that that was a complete thought, but that kind of what you had said about uh, time made me think of that conversation too. Yeah. I mean, and music is such a great example because um, it's like, yeah, I mean, like I, I have been listening to like the late Beethoven piano sonatas recently and it's just like, oh my God, like it's like, I, and I remember when, when like Beethoven first opened up to me and like when I was in like high school and it was like, oh my God, like I found like a, a kindred spirit. You, you know what I mean? Like, so bitter and like jaded about the world but still like on the inside like such an optimist and hopeful um you know and and, and this dude was alive like 200 years ago <laughs> you know but it's just like it's a, that i think that's like that's like a really cool thing about being in um any sort of art i think yeah i mean with with visual arts it's difficult because somebody has to think your art is worth preserving so there's that sort of that sort of gatekeeping happening but um, with music, it's it's not. I mean, it's there's still gatekeeping, but the means of distribution is much different. Mm. Yeah, one thing I really wanted to ask you about um, was the relationship between your work and your involvement with martial arts um, and the influence that's had on your practice. Um, if that's something that you wanted to speak to. Sure. I mean, I think um, I, I don't know if it's like one influences the other necessarily, but I definitely think that I'm just attracted to certain things. Like, um, so the main styles I'm involved with are Chi Kundo, which was Bruce Lee's philosophy of martial arts. It's not really a system; it's a it's an idea, and also uh, Filipino martial arts. And you know, the the main guy, he's literally like the human equivalent of Yoda. He's 87 years old. Um, he still teaches every day, but like he, you know, he is really big on like. It's like okay, like every five years, you basically have to like completely reevaluate your your entire martial arts system and um, and change it. You have to adapt it and like you know. So we we learn all these different arts, 
and some are going to work for you now, some will work for you later, but you're constantly like sort of like rearranging your own sort of personal martial arts system. And so I think that really, um, that sort of idea that it's not this static, you know, a lot of very traditional martial arts, it's static. You learn form one, form two, form three, form four, whatever, and you get your belts and, and that's it. This, uh, it's not even a system. This, this sort of philosophy is that you just are constantly rearranging and developing and researching. And it's a constantly, your martial arts system is personalized and it's also constantly uh, adapting as, as you change and as you are influenced by other people. Um, you know, maybe you learn a different style and you're like, oh my God, I can bring this into my, into my game a little bit. So I definitely think there's some commonality in the way that I like to think about things and the things that I'm attracted to with that. You know, and then when you're, when you're sparring, it's just like, that's, that's just improvising. And it's, it's, it's a relationship. You're developing a relationship with somebody and you have to be relaxed enough that you see what they're doing and that you respond to what they're doing. And you kind of like, you kind of like zone in on what they're doing. So you're kind of like having a conversation in a way, but you have to be able to like, listen. Otherwise, if you're just trying to impose your one game, then you're not going to hear what they're saying. So you have to be able to adapt and respond to what they're doing. Like, oh, this guy does this. So I can adapt by doing this. And then they'll respond to what you're doing. And it goes back and forth. But like the only way you build those responses is through just like tons and tons of reps too, which is not like, unlike just like the, the huge amounts of dumb labor I do in my studio, just like folding little forms over and over again. <laughs> um, so yeah. Yeah. And that like adaptiveness and responsiveness seems so like fundamental to being an artist. Yeah, I think so. Oh, that reminds me so much. And maybe just because we're talking about martial arts, but I've been watching this show uh, called Blue Eyed Samurai. Oh, yeah. I just started that, too. It's so good. Oh, it's so good. Yeah. Uh, I don't know if you've seen any of the fight scenes where it's like before a fight even begins, there's just like each fighter does like one subtle movement and sort of plans out the fight in their head. And they're like, no, I have to make a shift. And then the other person like shifts their foot mm. a little bit and then plays the whole fight out in their head. And it just it made me think of that. Um, and I don't know that that does seem like very metaphorical for life of like we just have to keep making these subtle adjustments and adapt as we keep going if we want to keep going. Yeah, I I just um I just wrote like a year end roundup on 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 Instagram, but um, I talked about there's uh, in, in the martial art C lot which is uh, I mean it's it's Southeast Asian martial art but most primarily Indonesian. Um, there's an idea called Pechahan. And that means like fragment, I think, I'm not sure, but it's like the idea, like you take a, take something and you drop it and it's going to shatter into a bunch of pieces, right? Depending on how high you drop it from or what it's made out of, et cetera, et cetera. And that's like a metaphor for adapting in combat. So you try a technique and it fails. And then what, instead of like resetting and like trying it again and again, from that moment, like, what are the possibilities? What are the pechahan that you see from there? So how can you flow directly from that failed technique into the next technique? You know, and depending on the body positioning, they'll, you know, some will be more efficient than others. Um, so that's the idea of finding that. But yeah, I really, I feel like we're living in like layers upon layers of compounded broken systems right now. And I think that a lot of us are just trying to do the same thing over and over again. But like, how do we find those people 
that are going to help us envision like the new possibilities and the next things. And I think it's like things like this, like this podcast where you choose people or like maybe some parts of TSA where we have the agency to build whatever we want or like, yeah, I don't know. I think Kyopo is, is, is doing similar things. And then maybe my work is almost like an illustration of that, or it's more just like a abstract manifestation of that, that sort of ethos. Yeah, definitely seems like an expression of all of those ideas. Did you want to talk more about your work with Gyopo too? I know that they've come up a couple of times, um, but I'm really interested to hear more about that community and um, if that's localized, like specific to Los Angeles, or is that a national network? Uh, maybe you could tell us more about that group. Yeah, so there, uh, it's it's very localized. It's it's um, ex- almost exclusively LA LA based folks, and it's um, it's not just artists, but it's mostly people in the arts. So some curators writers, artists, and then, you know, people not even in the arts. But basically, we put together free programming um, on like different topics. And it's usually about like, you know, tangentially arts related stuff. Or for example, next Friday, we're, we co-organize this thing at CalArts, and it'll be a reading by this uh, writer, Don Mee Choi, um, who's um, going to read from her new book, and we'll have like a little discussion and reception afterwards. Yeah, and it's. I think it's really. It's the first like Korean specific thing I've ever been involved with, uh, which honestly I was a little nervous about. But I think it's been it's been really great. There's so many uh, amazing people in there um, that I've been learning a lot from. And uh, again, it's just like it's like a platform to create sort of conversations that might not happen. You know, like we we get to organize what we want on our terms, and and then the people that are interested in those like tend to be like people that I want to hang out with. And then that sort of opens up different conversations and, and different connections, um, you know, in the arts and also not in the arts. Uh, so that's, that's the quick Kyopo plug. Yeah. So did you help to form this group or was this something that existed no. already that you got plugged into being in LA? Yeah, it existed. Um, I think it, uh, I think late 2016 or early 2017 is when it started. Um, but you know, I, there's like, I, I think they're the only, Korean American arts group in the country. So like I knew about them in New York and I followed their Instagram account. Um, so I, I definitely wanted to be plugged in with them when I moved out here. Wow. Curious. Um, well, when was it that you moved to Los Angeles from New York? Uh, October, 2020. Wow. Okay. Yeah. How has that been? <laughs> um, it was, it was tough um, at the beginning. Um, I feel like last year was like the year where it felt like, okay, like I'm, I, f- I feel like I can find, I feel like, I feel like I have enough like things in place or like I can, I can sort of see how my life will pan out and how I'll be able to sort of grow my life. You know, the first, the first two years were very isolating uh, because it also, so our second daughter was born uh, end of March 24th in New York city, 2020. So if you remember wow. what that was like, um, that was pretty intense. So, so then when, um, when we moved here, she was still very young and, you know, so I was I was home with her full time, so I was super isolated. And you know, my wife, uh, her work was very busy, so she was working all day long. So the first first two years were pretty tough, but I, I feel like now I feel like really good about it. I mean, it's very beautiful here, and yeah, I like I like I like the people that I've been meeting. So yeah, I mean, since we've been speaking so much about community, I imagine that was a challenge to not only move across the country, but you know, in the midst of a pandemic. Um, with a and new with, baby. Uh, yeah, oh my goodness. Yeah. Um, 
just to to sort of find that i mean it just takes time you know anytime you make a big move but um layered on top of it all of those challenges and people you know weren't even really able to meet in person and do you feel like is that something that you had to really proactively seek or like you know in the past couple of years do you feel like it's something that has started to grow more organically for you um, I mean, I think some of it was already uh, preordained for me. You know, like I, I got plugged into the TSALA group right away, and I had, I had known some of them at least virtually before. So that just took time. I knew I wanted to uh, be a part of Kyopo, so I, you know, very proactively tried to um, become, you know, tried to volunteer with them and get plugged in with them. You know, and then like just because of the geography of LA, like that, that's one of the things that made me want to start writing, so I can start to meet people uh, through through that as well. But yeah, so it's, it's, there's some things that had been set up beforehand and some things that I had to set up for myself. And, and you know, my, my martial arts teacher lives in LA and I'm an instructor under him. So I would have to fly out like once a year to train under him anyways, to keep my like my hours up or whatever. So I had, you know, I'd known some of the people there before as well. It's helpful to hear. I mean, I know anytime anyone makes any move, it just takes a long time to get settled into a new place. And even with these like connections and with actively reaching out, it still took time to like really get into it and and, like feel like, I don't know, you were a part of it or that you were able to like actually connect with people really. Mm -hmm. Yeah, it's I mean, it's, it's, it's pretty tough. But also, it's interesting, because um, it also kind of reset my relationship to my New York friends, too, which is kind of cool. You know, like, I kind of was able to, it, like, kind of reshuffled my priorities, you know, like, so, like, you know, usually, you, you know, usually when I visit now, like, I barely see any art, and I just, like, I just schedule my life around, like, what time my friends are free, and <laughs> just, like, hang out with mm-hmm. them. Um, so that, that you, you know, I miss them for sure, but it's it's been... It, it was a maybe it's just like, it's like a way to it was like a way to like be like oh I really appreciate these people and like I want to spend time with them every chance I get and, you know you don't you don't see that when you can like when you can see them whenever you want although even that's a myth you, you know when you live in New York you never see anyone because you're like everybody's too busy you're like yeah yeah we'll hang out yeah, yeah, yeah. oh yeah <laughs> anyways yeah I mean that's part of why Nicole and I started the podcast is Nicole was moving to the other side of the country and we're like how do we keep in touch and like make excuses to get together in person and you know a lot of times we'll like plan things around art or like you know oh we got to go to this conference or oh we're going to go host this event but really it's just an excuse to to stay connected as friends and to like be part of each other's lives Mm. and um, I feel like that's so much of that's been such a recurring theme of your of this conversation of just like community and connection and uh finding ways to really be with people yeah wait where do you both live oh i'm in baltimore and nicole is in san francisco i sorry i always forget to apply context but nicole and i both started in baltimore and then uh she was moving out to san francisco and that was kind of when we started the podcast uh because we were like well I've loved being roommates and and friends that can get together on the regular. How do we keep in touch and like stay friends that also get to like talk art and talk to other artists too? Yeah. Yeah, that's smart. Yeah, I always remember the 
um, timeline of the podcast because it coincided with my moving out to the West Coast. So it was late 2016, early 2017 um, that we both started this project and that I moved out to San Francisco. But I also feel like it What did you move out to San Francisco for? Oh, um, you know, it was a combination of things. I had been in Baltimore for almost nine years at that point, and I think my um, partner Dave and I, uh, who's also an artist or designer and art director and um, many other things, uh, were just kind of wanting a change and to put ourselves in a new environment. And it was funny hearing you talk about um, living in New York because I think it was a bit of a conversation for us. Like, do we move to you know, another larger city on the East Coast like New York, or do we try something different and move out West? And I really felt like New York would just reinforce a lot of the workaholic tendencies that we already have. And it's still very much a challenge for us out here. But I think part of it was like hoping that, you know, it would offer a little bit of balance. (laughs) And then I had a, um, my brother was living out here at the time, and um, he ended up getting a job offer that was sort of the catalyst um, that brought us out to San Francisco specifically. But But I think it did take at least like two or three years to even start to feel a little bit settled. So, um, you know, this was pre-pandemic, so not even with all of the challenges of that or having a new baby and everything that you went through. Um, But just to kind of like, you know, start to establish a little bit of stability and like meet people and like find, find your community and it just takes a lot of time. So I think this whole conversation has been really inspiring to me because I often feel like, you know, I fall into that trap of like, well, I have to be focused on the work and like very just like, you know, everything is like centered around the studio or like very career oriented. And it's easy to kind of let these friendships or relationships uh, fall by the wayside. And I, I think also like maybe the pandemic has created some perspective shifts and I've really been trying to prioritize that more and just you know having like some friends and family that moved away it really felt like that time was kind of a reset and so in some ways it almost felt like starting over after like 2020 2021 and like being in a brand new city again so kind of like figuring out okay what is really important and like what do I want this balance to look like and just not wanting to feed into that hustle culture, um, like you were saying. Mm-hmm. So just so much of what you described really resonates. And I really appreciate um, hearing that from you because I feel like you are somebody that really embodies that community spirit and like prioritizes like relationships and really making that at the forefront and how important it is for us all to do that. So I really thank you for sharing your story and um and just also like how, how you're doing that, because I think it's it's one thing to be like, yes, I want to do these things, but like really putting it into practice, um, you know, and like allowing for the like messiness or for, you know, like letting go of whatever your expectations were or whatever sense of control you wanted to have. Like, you know, you really have to like enter into this with a, a much different um, mentality. And so um, it's been really inspiring just to hear you talk about these things. Yeah, thanks. It's been it's been a great conversation. I think the pandemic really did reset a lot of things for people, right? It's, I mean, like, what else is there besides like our relationships and our communities, mm-hmm. and like, what other way is there to change change things besides through community and relationships? Because like, you know, like government's not gonna change that much, and 
you know, we'll just incremental change our way into, into oblivion and, you know, the larger art institutions aren't going to, there's no incentive for them to change like at all. Cause like people's money depends on certain artists staying important all the time. So there's no way the wealthy are going to magically change their minds. <laughs> so yeah. I, I don't know. I just, I really think that it's, um, yeah, it's just there. It's, it's, I, well, I should rephrase that. I, I I want to really keep aligning my life, prioritizing relationships and community, um, and I have to constantly relearn that. And like even like the the art stuff, like it's like the being more precise about that too. You know, it's like, well, I want to have an art career. What what does that mean? I want to show my work. Well, why do you want to show your work? Well, okay, you know, it's like I just want to show in a gallery. It's like why? I'm like hmm, okay, I don't know. And I, I think it's, you know, we, it goes back to the relationship thing. I want, you know, I want to have conversations about my work with other people. And the only infrastructure for that to happen really is is through the gallery, is, is through uh, exhibition spaces. So that's that's why I want exhibitions. Mm-hmm. Okay, so so where do you want to show then? And it's like, okay, well, well I, I'd like to show in spaces where, or I'd like to work with people or work with spaces where I feel like I'll, fi- I'll find like most more like-minded people. Okay, so where's that? Okay, so that's probably it's probably going to be like not some nonprofits, more alternative spaces, places like that. And, and I don't know. I just been trying to be much more precise and much more, yeah, much more precise about how I'm thinking about my art career. Because before it was just very vague, right? Like, well, like I guess I I want a gallery representation because that's the only metric of success that I was shown, and that's the only way forward. But then, like, what's the goal for that? Is to make money, or it's to become famous, or is it to have conversations? You know, like, and I think everybody has to answer that for themselves. So I've been trying to like think about that more recently. But it's hard because the the rest of the kind of the the more the most of the art world will tell you only one thing. So like every time I open Instagram, I have to like remind myself that this is what I'm trying to choose for myself, which is many many more times per day than I'd like to admit. <laughs> Oh, same. (laughs) That is such a great exercise, though, for every person to go through to just try to keep unpacking and like getting more and more specific or like to the root of what you're really, you know, striving for. And I feel like, I mean, I often think back to when. Amanda and I first graduated from art school or like before we started the podcast and, you know, this kind of like place we were in where it felt like everything was sort of open-ended, but we really only had a vague idea of what was out there or like maybe this one narrative that we were given through the art school education system or, you know, just didn't really have many other examples of what a real like long-term life in the arts looked like. And so I think it's very difficult, especially in, you know, the arts where there is so much like instability or open-endedness or infinite pathways to really define for ourselves what those are, either A, like without the examples to look to, or B, without like any sort of like it can be scary to to be really specific when you're not sure what's possible or you know you don't want to like pigeonhole right. yourself or you there are no guarantees so it it can be hard to sort of name the things that you really want and i think just 
like really getting honest with yourself and trying to kind of unpack um, in the way that you were, like how how do you want to like move forward and build this life is so critical to being intentional, I guess, and just not like falling into that hamster wheel of just like working and hustling, but for what? And like, why are you working so hard? And what are you working towards? And so it's like these kind of larger, almost more existential questions that can really give us the, like the clarity and the, like alleviate some of that anxiety and pressure maybe. Um, of just feeling like you have to like yeah. be everywhere all at once and be sharing the work and making the work and just like falling into that trap of always spinning your wheels. Yeah. And then like, um, you know, another question I think about a lot is like, are there no examples or is there a reason that it's hard to find previous examples, whether it's because things weren't valued, so they weren't archived, you know, or, you know, like, like, like I, th- I think that what we're doing at TSA is is cool and like it's like very inspiring to see what uh, communally we've achieved, um, but it's not valuable to 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 people that will archive things. So mm-hmm. I don't think there'll ever really be, uh, I don't think there'll be much written about TSA, which is which is fine. Um, but like you know what I mean, like but like there's there's all these like different spaces that have existed and all these other ideas of organizing that have existed. It's just. Mm-hmm certain people didn't think it was valuable enough to archive. So, so, you know, sometimes it's like, maybe, yes, there are not that many models, but like, I think it's also competing with the fact that a lot of these models are intentionally not, not rewarded, you know, um, by being archived or, or whatever. And um, another thing I wanted to say was like, you know, like choosing to you know, choosing to try to show at more alternative spaces or nonprofit spaces or carve out a different life, um, it has a cost. Like I think everything has a cost. Like it's not just like all like sunshine and roses, right? Like so, like a very practical example is that like if I'm showing mostly at alternative spaces, then that means that uh, there'll be no budget for the most part. You know, I have to get myself there or like you know all sorts of they they won't have maybe the infrastructure that like a larger institution would have so that costs something and maybe that cost is worth it to you maybe it's not but i think also like trying to just exist in the current mainstream system and achieve like fame and, and awards and accolades within that system i think that also costs something so you know i think you know you have to just figure out for yourself like what what you're willing to pay you know and like i feel like I don't know. Like sometimes it's really frustrating, but I think that overall the the cost of how much time I've given to help other artists is is worth it. Definitely there's moments where like I don't feel like it's worth it, but like uh, I, I think just just real there's no like magic like magical uh, unicorn land where it's like it's all like everybody's in community and everybody's like happy. Like it's it's it it costs something to build that, you know. And it costs something to try to be in there, but it's just we just all have to assess like which, what's the what 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 are we willing to pay? Yeah. Oh yeah, yeah. We probably as artists come across so many of these moments where we have to make a decision, where it's like which which path do I go on this choose your own adventure, uh, and which mm-hmm. uh, I guess consequences and benefits am I willing to to deal with? Because there will be right. both in both, like in whatever route you take. Yeah. Yeah, that's a helpful. This is uh, this has all been so helpful. I feel like I'm so excited to listen back to this because you've uh, 
many of our conversations on the podcast feel like therapy and this is definitely one of them. <laughs> oh, that's, that's good. I'm a, yeah, I'm a chronic oversharer. So like we'll, we'll always, we'll always go to the, my friend calls me sad boy all the time. So I, I, I always bring that sad boy energy <laughs> to any conversation. <laughs> I can relate to that. And uh, then you're welcome on the podcast anytime because um, there, there is, um, even though it may come off as, as sad boy energy uh, to, to us, or at least to me, I, it, I feel like it comes across as authentic vulnerability and a lot of folks have a hard time with that. So if we, for those that come to it easily, I think it's such a gift to share and it helps others to connect with their sad boy feelings too. So I don't know. <laughs> <laughs> That's good. Yes. We'll all be yes. sad boys. Sad boys yes, for life. For our 2024. Well, I guess beyond 2024. <laughs> that's it. <laughs> yeah. Um, <laughs> is there anything that uh, we haven't talked about that you wanted to share? Um, and for folks that are listening, where can they find your work, find Tiger Strikes Asteroid, um, and any other uh, projects or interests that you would want to share? Well, I guess. Thank you, first of all, for having me. I really enjoyed the conversation. Um, yeah, I guess people can f follow me uh, on my website. It's uh, alexpeck.com. Um, I'm primarily on Instagram. It's also just Alex Peck. And if you want to follow TSA in, in true chaotic fashion, we have uh, five separate um, Instagram accounts. <laughs> so you can you can follow whichever ones you... We can link them all. <laughs> yeah, you can follow whichever ones you want to. Um, you know, we have just one unified website, so you can go to there. And you can follow Kyopo at um, kyopo.us. Uh, and they're also on Instagram. I think it's uh, kyopo.us is their handle. Is that is that everything? Yeah. I think so. If you think of things later, we'll, we can link them in the show notes on our website. But yeah, this conversation has been such a gift. Thank you so much. We really appreciate your willingness to share and just, you know, being open to talking about all of these things. And it is always in the listening back that like all of those lessons start to sink in. So like Amanda said, I'm just so excited to re-listen to this conversation. And I know it's one that we'll return to many times over. Yeah. Thank you. Thank you both for having me. Maybe we can make like separate like little mantra reels. Yes. <laughs> I'll just hit the button in the morning. Like, but okay, change, give me the yeah. pep talk, Alex. Change, change my voice because I don't like hearing my voice. <laughs> yeah, we'll make it so that it you can switch it out. Maybe we'll... we'll... I want uh, Arnold, Arnold Schwarzenegger, if you can do that. Can you I get that? I feel like there has to be some AI app for that at this point. Sure. <laughs> like... I think there is. You could do like, yeah. Yeah, I saw yeah. It so on change TV my voice show, to Arnold Schwarzenegger, so please. Exist. Yeah. You'll have a yeah. very, very uh, distinct Austrian accent shortly. <laughs> yes. Thank you. That's all for today's episode of Beyond the Studio. You can find episode notes, images, links, and references over at our website, beyondthe.studio. While you're there, be sure to submit to our listener spotlight and sign up for our email list to find out about upcoming guests, events, special announcements, podcast giveaways, and more. If you love listening to Beyond the Studio, please leave us a rating and review and share the show with your creative community. Thanks! Hello? Okay, that looks better. Um, Nicole, since my microphone's being a little silly, would you mind doing the yeah. introduction? <laughs>
since you're you're on all reliable over there. Yeah, of course. Um, yeah, and actually, well, Amanda's I'm back on her old device right now, but we both just upgraded our laptops after like like eight to ten years. So this is the first time that I'm recording on my new device, and it's it's like night and day. So hopefully this this Gosh. will be like our smoothest podcast recording ever. <laughs> I realize that would be ever for the podcast. Yeah. Because you've had the same computer for the whole time. Yes. Oh, my gosh. Um, but yes. Okay. 